Hello and welcome back to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. I am the traffic anchor for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. I am pedestrian advocate and cycling adversary, Joseph Peters. You can find me on Twitter at JosephDenver7. He's on Twitter at Denver7Traffic. What happened? I just keep getting into fights with bicyclists, man. I don't understand why they have to pass me so close when I'm on the sidewalk. Because they can, and they are so speedy that they've zipped away before you can confront them. Well, this woman coming in the opposite direction today, like, I try to stick to one side of the sidewalk or the other. I try to make it really clear which side that's going to be. This cyclist, I mean, was just barreling straight for me on my side, and I had to step off the sidewalk. It's fine. It's just not fair. That's all I'm saying. It is not fair. Bikers should be all crushed in a big car crusher. Yes. And their bikes along with them, right? Absolutely. All right, that may be a little extreme. Uh, There's so much to get to in today's show. So much going on in the transportation world, from bad airlines to even worse self-driving cars. But first, Joseph, we must get to a more pressing issue from last week. Last week, I posed the question to you and to one and all about how much gas is left in the hose at the gas pump. There, You know there is gas left in that hose. Right, and you're putting somebody else's bad gas in your tank, which is full of the top-notch gas. Exactly. And I don't want their bad gas contaminating my good gas in my good tank. Your precious tank, Jason. Well, after we had that discussion last week, I did some research into the matter so how much gas do you have to go through first before your premium gas comes out after the last Yahoo left all the regular gas in there? Well, I found a couple of guesses that range from a tenth of a gallon to a full gallon, but the only definitive answer I could find was from an article in the Wall Street Journal from December of 2008, and it was in the form of a question and answer column with a question coming from a person who rides a motorcycle and has the same question about how much gas is left in the hose. A lot of people with motorcycles or that are trying to fill up just their gallon or two-gallon gas cans mm-hmm. for their lawnmowers or their whatever you know equipment that they want to take home, they want to know how much of that bad gas is still in the hose, and they and they want to because especially for motorcycles because they too want to put the high premium gas. Into their little tanks. Well, and like it's a lower ratio with motorcycles, right? Because you're carrying around a lower tank, there, there's a higher percentage of that bad yes. gas in your tank. Yeah, like my Volt gas tank, I think it's at seven gallons. That's still a little bit bigger than the motorcycle gas cans, but anyway. Well, think about like a 15-gallon Jetta. You know what yeah, I mean? They, like, who cares matter. about yeah. the third of it? Whatever. So the answer they say is according to the American Petroleum Institute... The gas pump hose typically retains about one-third of a gallon of fuel. So when you pump in a couple of gallons of 93-octane premium after the previous customer pumped in their 85 regular, your fuel load will be a little bit diluted, but obviously it's not that big of a deal the more gas you put in there. Mm -hmm. It's actually how they get the mid-grade fuel, by the way. They actually just have the two pumps come into or the two hoses from the tanks, from the underground tanks, come up to the pump. And then from there, they if you get the mid-grade, they just mix the two like you're doing, uh, like you're at the uh, Sweet Tomatoes and you're getting the swirl chocolate and vanilla mixed mm. in your bowl. That It's that same idea. I would have referenced a Long Island iced tea and how all the liquors come together, but sure. <laughs> swirl ice cream. <laughs> 
So this is now when I'm going to go to the gas can go to the gas stations. Uh, I'm just going to start the pump, and then I'm going to unload the first half gallon of uh, my purchase right there into the trash barrel before filling up my car. That is a bold and dangerous move, I would say. Uh, can't you just put it in a gas can? Like that can be your lawnmower gas. No, we cannot be carrying gas cans around in my vault all the time. Mm-hmm. That is impractical, and I like the trash barrel method much better. <laughs> sure, it's not practical, and it's probably illegal. Where I grew up in New Hampshire, there were a lot of people who would just smoke cigarettes at the gas pump. No yeah. big deal. Your your gasoline-filled trash barrel really worries me in this cigarette smoking Well, situation. I'm just trying to help out the homeless, because then the homeless could hang around the gas-filled barrel and then warm themselves on those cool winter nights here in Colorado. <laughs> Okay. Okay. All right. Also, last week, we talked about how the puppy died on a United flight after being crammed in the overhead bin for over three hours. Tragic story. Well, now United has another pet disaster to deal with after they mistakenly flew a dog to Japan, where Kara and Joseph Swindle said that they and their two uh, children had landed in Kansas City, expecting to be reunited with their German shepherd, Ergo. Well, instead, the family was met with a Great Dane they had never seen before. The error they believed actually occurred here in Denver. And the dogs were sent to the right cities on private charters after that mix-up. But could you imagine being a dog in the cargo hold flying from the United States to Japan? No. I, I can't imagine it just trying to be comfortable in the uh, cabin of the aircraft. Right. I mean, that's a 13-hour flight at a minimum, correct? And you put a dog in a cargo hold that's probably dimly lit. Probably not as comfortable as you would get. Well, you got a whole bunch of suitcases and whatnot banging around in there, and now you add a dog in a crate to the mix, so he's tumbling. I mean, I'm sure that having never spent any time in a cargo hold, I'm sure he's staying right side up or she's staying right side up. But apart from that, it's just a free for all in there and for now, 13 hours. Exactly. It's just it's got to be terrifying for the animals. So now United Airlines is suspending taking any pet and really any animal, any animal, all dogs and pets. On planes, in the cargo hold, until they finish some internal review that's scheduled to be done by May 1st. I mean, this is the decision we knew was coming, right? Right. And so United also said it would adopt bright-colored tags for the in-cabin pet carriers by April 1st, and that's to prevent uh, dogs from being put in the overhead bin and then being up there for too long, yelping and yelping and yelping until they die. I mean, there's a big difference between the overhead bin... Right. And the cargo hold. Oh, yeah. The car- the overhead bin is so tight. I mean, it's supposed to be airtight, correct? Well, I don't think airtight, but it is pretty. It's it, There's no airflow, I exactly. should say that. So, I mean, that, that to me is, uh, you should never have done that in the first place. No. United said in a statement that we are conducting a thorough and systematic review of our programs for pets that travel in the cargo compartment to make improvements that will ensure the best possible experience for our customers and their pets. United carried the most animals in cargo of any airline last year. It has the most animal deaths of any airline in each of the last five years. And animal welfare experts typically recommend against putting your pet in the cargo hold at any time. Mm -hmm. They suggest instead you either take your pet in the cabin with you if you can or just choose another method of transportation. I mean, I don't think you should be taking a pet any sort of distance that you can't drive, unless you're flying a private plane and, and that dog has the run of the entire plane. 
Louisiana Senator John Kennedy already filed a bill prohibiting airlines from putting live animals in overhead bins. He says violators would face significant fines as pets are family. And also on the other side of the story, as we like to say around here, we go 360 on this issue. Hit him, Jason. Uh, There is uh, a little bit of backlash because there are a lot of people, including pet breeders, who ship their pets across country or around the country via these airlines and put them in the cargo hold. So people will buy the pet from elsewhere, and then you ship it. And so that has obviously going to affect a lot of people who are in the pet breeding industry. Drive. I mean, yeah. you shouldn't be shipping pets. You should not be shipping pets any sort of distance that you can't just drive, where you're all doing the same amount of moving about the cabin, quote-unquote, so to speak. I mean, the idea of being a pet breeder and then putting one of these animals that you have raised in a little cage and putting them on a plane and letting them bounce around for four hours to get to their destination, if we're having a debate about that, it can't be a good thing. I also heard uh, that the shelters in in, in big cities are also concerned they're going to see an increase in people bringing them pets because let's say I had to move from here to Hawaii and mm. there was no way I'm going to pay for my pet you know, as much as I love it to, to go to Hawaii or go to wherever that these pet shelters are going to start taking in a lot more pets and it's going to put a strain on them and their already strained budget and uh, you're going to see a lot more pets dropped off and then subsequently put to sleep because these facilities can't take care of them. How often do we think those facilities actually see somebody who's moving and says, I don't want to bring my pet with me? Well, I don't think they see them that often now, but with, and, and this, this ban, if you will, or this hold is really only for a month. Mm-hmm. And, and so then you got to figure out what the, what the regulations are. And there are other, other airlines that will fly your pet still in that same way. So uh, Delta, American, right. I'm sure the other airlines will will fly your pet somewhere. And there's so nobody's being left high and dry here. No, it's just United doing doing this right now. And and if all that isn't bad enough, now another passenger is taking uh, is making a claim that is, if true, is quite baffling. A man says he was sitting on a United flight next to a woman who put her bare feet on the trade table next to him while he was eating. In a series of tweets, he described how the woman pulled down her tray table and then put both of her feet up and on it. On her tray table. On her tray table while he was next to her eating. Get over it, dude. Really? It's her tray table. She it's can do her, what she that's, wants. That's gross. She needed to stretch. She's getting, trying to get those hammies and glutes a good stretch by putting her feet on the tray table. Then this man claims the flight attendants turned a blind eye because he is black And the woman is white. He said, so flight staff walks by numerous times without saying anything, and I'm irate because no black person would ever get away with this. So I start looking at the staff, (laughs) noting that there's an issue, you know, giving them the snitch eye. So finally I say something to the woman myself. So I say, ma'am, I'm trying to eat, and your feet are next to my food. She says, what do you want me to do? These seats are small. Well, yeah, the seats in economy class are are pretty small however the woman doesn't sound like she's the most understanding of humans it doesn't seem like putting your feet on your tray table would be a way to get more space for yourself no or to win friends and influence correct people the man then said i understand which is why there is room for your feet and legs under the seat in front of you 
She says, this is why I usually fly first class and I don't come back here with everyone else. This story. Okay. <laughs> he then asked, oh, well, that's great. Are you, are you going to put your feet down? Then the story gets better. As she calls over a flight attendant, she says to the flight attendant, this man is disrupting my flight. I'm just trying to be comfortable. <laughs> so then the guy points at her feet and tries to explain his side of the story. Now, the flight attendant says, well, what if she puts her feet closer to the window or puts one down? And here is where the story gets crazy. The woman says, if I put one foot down, I want to be accommodated for accommodating him. What? Can, can such a can, can can a woman really be that much of a big shot that she has this level of audacity to to ask to be compensated for putting her feet down off of a tray table? I mean, that's insane. Is that crazy? You gotta ask. You can't get it if you don't ask for it. I well, and now for the mind blowing part of this whole thing. So the flight attendant speaks to the person in charge on the plane, and they promise this woman. A $1,000 voucher. $1,000 voucher. Congratulations. <laughs> nope. I'm calling shenanigans on this whole story, Jason. <laughs> There's no way this really happened. It was live tweeted. I, I can live tweet anything. It was live fake tweeted. There is no way. There is nobody on this planet that would put their bare feet on a tray table and then ask for a thousand dollar voucher to get them put to have them put their feet down. Well, the airline did validate the story, and there's more on that in just a second. I don't believe that either. I, I, I mean, really, the flight. I, I want to know if the flight attendant might have just been trying to force this woman into some kind of decent action with the promise of a huge reward. Upon hearing the incredible offer, the guy then asked the flight attendant. What voucher will I be receiving for my suffering? Prompting the flight attendant to apparently say, Sir, we can only make but so many accommodations, and she has agreed to move her feet for you. Congratulations, sir. Get to eat your dinner or your meal or whatever in peace without feet next to you, but she's going to collect $1,000. Yay. I'm speechless. So this man was live-tweeting the entire time. Of course, the tweets went viral, with people tweeting at United asking if the airline's policy is to reward passengers with high-value vouchers for practicing common courtesy. Well, the day after he tweeted about the incident, the man then posted an update saying that he had received a call from United, and the representative claimed that the woman was not, in fact, given any vouchers as compensation. He finally tweeted... That he was happy to hear that the airline didn't compensate the woman for her behavior, but he was still unhappy about the fact that by attempting to momentarily pacify her, the flight attendant created a negative situation for him and took her side. I, I wonder how the airline can say she wasn't compensated when she was promised the voucher. Maybe they just didn't give her the voucher. Do you think she just forgot about it or just didn't collect it at the end of the flight? Maybe the whole story was made up. And there was no voucher to be given in the first place. Or maybe the flight attendant later said that I'm not going to give you the voucher. And after the flight was over and she just didn't, this woman maybe just didn't raise a stink enough about it to to, to make the news. If she raised her bare feet onto a tray table, she definitely raised a stink. Nobody's <laughs> bare feet smell good. No, they didn't. But either this story is a lie or the airline lied about it. 
Um, and and she never did get the voucher when it was promised to her, and maybe she actually got the voucher, and the only people that know that this woman got the voucher is the woman and the airline and everybody else, and the airline then lied about it saying, no, we didn't give a voucher at all, but really in, in, act, in, in reality they did. We're going to get United on the phone after the break. I want to, I want to hear from United on this. But what, what, what at its core, what this really is, is another example of poor service, especially by United and especially by the airlines. It's just... It's what we're used to as a flying public. And that's sad. And that's really depressing. And speaking of airlines, even with all the issues and problems and poor customer service, there isn't any other more efficient way to really get from city to city quicker than on an airplane. It's true. So if you're the type of traveler who worries about catching the flu or some other kind of dreaded disease from a fellow airline passenger while you're on the flight, here's a new study that you could chew on on your next flight. If a plane takes off with one affected flyer, it's likely to land on the other side of the country with only 1.7 infected flyers. So what the research said is that you really need to watch out for our flight attendants who are sick with a cough or runny nose because a single one of them can infect Four and a half passengers during a flight. Oh, I'd hate to be that half passenger. <laughs> Me too. Maybe it's a child or a dog. The group that dubbed itself the Fly Healthy Research Team came to these conclusions after flying back and forth from Atlanta to the West Coast on 10 flights and paying extremely close attention to the movements within the cabin. The 10 researchers boarded each flight, spaced themselves in pairs five to seven rows apart, sitting in seats on opposite sides of the aisles. So from these prime vantage points, they took copious notes and uh, of who went where on the airplane. Mm. Then they recorded each step in their iPad app, and over the course of 10 flights, several patterns, they say, emerged. Passengers seated along the aisle were much more likely to move about the cabin than passengers seated next to the window. Overall, 57% of those in window seats stayed put their entire flight, compared with 48% of those in the middle seat, and 20% of those in the aisle seat. But I would think that most people who choose the aisle seat do so because maybe they have some kind of a digestive issue of some sort or small bladder and need to get up and and probably are already thinking, I need to do this because I have to go to the bathroom all the time. I would also say as somebody who prefers the window seat, some people just like to be in that space where they can put their head against the side of the plane and call it a day for three or four hours. That too. That, that but too. to put those numbers in context, I mean, that's – so one in five person people who sits in the aisle seat stays in the aisle seat the entire time. Three out of five people who sit in a window seat stay in that seat the entire time. And they say there were two main reasons for people who did get up during the flight, either to go to the bathroom or to get into the overhead bin. Mm-hmm. Now, among all 1,300 passengers on all 10 flights, 84% had close contact with another passenger seated more than three feet away. But crew members typically spend about a third of their time in contact with passengers, so they are the ones that can really spread the germs. Mm -hmm. The researchers used all this data to simulate what would happen if a passenger in seat, let's say 14C, an aisle seat, were sick, and concluded the odds that a single passenger would start an outbreak were extremely low. For the 11 closest passengers, the odds of being infected were high, but for everybody else on the airplane, the odds of being sickened were less than three-tenths of a percent. For the plane as a whole, the simulation showed that on average, only about one additional passenger would become sick over the course of a cross-country flight. Now, the researchers repeated their work with simulations that placed sick passengers in other seats 
And in the worst case scenario, only two people became infected as a result of their in-flight exposure to another passenger. Having a sick flight attendant, though, was another story. Since these crew members are moving all around the cabin and they get close to so many passengers, they have much more of an opportunity to spread this disease mm. and all the germs around the, to the other people. So the researchers calculated that one sick crew member would infect four and a half passengers on average. As for the air in the cabin, just the air getting you sick, over the 10 flights, the researchers took 229 samples of cabin air and swabbed the surfaces of the tray tables and the seatbelt buckles and then the door handles of the bathrooms. And they say none of those samples contain genetic evidence for any of the 18 common respiratory viruses. That's a pretty striking finding considering that eight of the flights occurred during flu season. Well, and it also feels like that air is <laughs> toxic coming out of those little nozzles on the top of the plane. Yeah, I think, I, I think they are. Now, passengers would likely behave differently on shorter trips, shorter flights, or on longer haul flights uh, from one continent to another, and that would affect the disease transmission dynamic in the cabin, as would other cabin configurations with more aisles or fewer seats or if you're farther from the aisle, that sort of thing. Right. So, bottom line. We always like to go to the bottom line here. Passengers in the window seats got up less often and came into contact with fewer fellow passengers, so that might make... That might make the window seat the safer bet for those who are germaphobes and want to avoid germs on plants. All of that for that. All right. Give me that window seat. There it is. One problem with this research, though, is that they're assuming that only one person on the flight is sick, when in reality we all know that most of the people on the plane are sick. So that chance of just a few people on the flight is going to catch whatever that other person's got is not accurate. Right. Everyone, everyone is going to get it unless you bring in your own mustard gas gas mask and wear it the entire time. Right. Everybody's getting sick with everything. Are those things allowed through security? What? Uh, like a big mustard gas gas mask with the hoses? Oh, absolutely not. Could be a bomb. You don't think so? Could definitely be a bomb. I think that's why maybe you see more and more people wearing those white medical masks like they do in Asia a lot. Uh, do you think that in our lifetime we will be ever be caught wearing a medicine mask on an airplane? No. No, no, no. I did wear have to wear it for a couple of weeks when I was uh, digging out the old crawl space of my uh, the basement of my former home. And because the first couple of days when I was doing that, I was blowing out, like, mud out of my nose. <laughs> I thought, maybe I should probably be wearing a mask. Let me not do this in front of my family. Yeah, that's probably why I can't breathe to this day. Mm. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about the tragic story of that woman who was killed by the self-driving car down in Arizona. And don't you wish there was a card game with a commuting theme? Yes. Well, I have some great news for you. Coming up as the Driving You Crazy podcast continues. Hidalgo, and you're listening to the Driving You Crazy podcast with the crazy himself, Jason Luber. I don't, you know, angry might not be the best word to describe Jason Luber, uh, but he he gets fired up and passionate about minor 
traffic topics even. And and so the major ones, it's even more fun. But he tells us all about uh, traffic issues in other states and other countries and these weird stories that come out of these places. You'd, you'd never believe how they handle some of their situations. Some of it maybe we could apply here in Colorado. And that, that's why I like to listen to the podcast, because I really actually learn something about traffic and roads and the system in our state. And it makes me want to do better. It makes me want to demand better. Nicole Brady, only on Denver 7. Why should you watch Denver 7? Simple. Best team in town. Jason Luber knows traffic better than anyone. I'm just a cool reporter. Lisa, she knows what's up. Mitch, I call him Superman. Awesome. I'm a cool reporter. I mean, we're just a great team and we're like family. And that, I think that helps with the dynamics. So uh, you got to watch us every day. Eric Luford, only on Denver 7. Welcome back to the world famous Driving You Crazy podcast. There's one good way to deter crime, Joseph, is that you make the penalty for that crime outrageous. Yes. In Victoria, Australia, for example, if you're caught going twice the speed limit while talking onto your cell phone at the same time, you can have your car taken away for a month. That's pretty outrageous. That's what happened to one man down in Australia. And to make the story even more bizarre, the man had just bought the car 10 minutes earlier before he was caught by police. Twice the speed limit and on his cell phone. What, do we know what the speed limit was? No, we don't. Big difference between 30 and 60 in this situation. But he was driving a new Porsche, so I'm sure he was testing it out. Mm, the police uh, took his car for a month so that he <laughs> wouldn't be able to be dangerous, not because they wanted to go out on joy rides of their own. Yeah, so he bought this new Porsche, drove it off the lot. Ten minutes later, he gets pulled over. The use of mobile phones while driving in Victoria is against the law. As you can see, significant penalties may apply. If you want to end the problem of people using their cell phones here in the United States, this is one surefire way to do it. Denver police would have to get a impound lot the size of the parking lots over at Mile High Stadium if we ever passed a law like that. Good. Buy the lot. There you go. Lock them up. But that's the only way to do it. That's why you always hear about the drunk driving uh, issue, why it's so still prevalent. Second offense, if you're in jail, mandatory for six months, you're not going to have any more DUIs. I've got a better one. What if every DUI offender is entered into a lottery, and every three months we draw 12 names, and those 12 people have their car crushed live on television, with, and it's preceded by a brief video describing how they ended up in this situation and how they're going to turn their lives around afterwards? I thought you were going to go Hunger Games, but this is much better. Public shaming and public car destruction. I would watch this show every week on Denver 7. Maybe we should call, well, I guess ABC does some of their own uh, shows. But you remember that show with um, Joe Rogan and it was on NBC? Fear Factor. There you go. Very similar you finally went into my wheelhouse. There man. you go. We talk about all these movies I've never seen. Fear Factor, I'm right here for Yeah, it. I'm talking about Star Wars that you've never seen. Have you seen Casablanca yet? I've seen Casablanca. Oh, have you? Yeah. Okay, good. All right, this event is another huge setback here for self-driving cars. The woman in Tempe, Arizona, who was killed when she was hit by a self-driving Uber this week, the car had, had a safety driver 
who in theory should have taken control of the car to prevent the crash, but didn't. I still have not heard any uh, anything else from the police about why that person didn't take control of the car before it hit that woman. I mean, I think it's going to come out, and we're obviously going to have to wait for the police report, so anything I'm about to say is reckless speculation, but she, uh, this woman, it sounds like she wasn't in an assigned crosswalk. It's no. very possible that she just ran into traffic, and this car was going too fast to be stopped. Well, I don't think the car, the Uber, was driving past the speed limit. As I understand, it was driving five under. But it was four. The speed limit was forty. You know, it's hard to stop a vehicle that's going that fast. And if somebody darts out in front of you, there's nothing you can do. Well, I I heard that the speed limit is forty-five, and they were going forty in the forty-five. And this woman, who's a forty-nine-year-old woman, um, was holding her bike outside the crosswalk, as you said, trying to cross the street. So obviously, her issue. But I think if you or I were driving. Paying attention, it was at night, so obviously you're not. It's gonna. She's she's probably not well lit, um, and it, it was ten o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. So I, I still think if it was a human driver, we probably would have seen that person crossing the street. I think at the end of the day, and obviously this is a tragedy. I feel very badly for this woman's family, but it's on the pedestrian if you're outside of a crosswalk to know that there are no cars coming before you make a move. Yeah. I mean, that's not the car's responsibility to stop if you're doing the wrong thing. This happens, like, literally on my block, you can't get to the crosswalk. The closest crosswalk is a quarter mile away right now. So you have to cross in the middle of the street, and there's an implied crosswalk set up. But if I walk into the implied crosswalk, and there's a car coming at 30 miles an hour that's, like, two feet away from me, that's on me. That's not on the car to make that stop if I'm the one that's running out into traffic when I shouldn't be. And maybe that's why there won't be any criminal charges filed against Uber or that driver, the uh, watching driver, uh, in this case. Do you think the car would be smart enough to represent itself at court? Uh, probably not. Okay. It could probably drive up to the courthouse, but I think getting up the courthouse steps, it would have an issue. Uh, but Uber quickly suspended testing of all its self-driving cars, not only there in Tempe, but in Pittsburgh and San Francisco and Toronto now, the police, in the preliminary investigation, they, sh- they say that the vehicle was going about 40 in the 45-mile-an-hour zone. They said it didn't appear as though the car had slowed down at all before impact and that the safety driver had shown no sign of impairment. Well, uh, but, but... We should hope, right? We sh- exactly. So what was she doing in the car besides watching the road and not letting this self-driving car hit and kill this person crossing the road because you would think that even with that person in there she would have seen something and then hit the brakes i i wonder and i i think there's a camera that is actually facing the driver at all times uh-huh. the, the simulator you know the the safety driver and so it's kind of like that cadillac there's a there's a, a semi-autonomous cadillac that does the same thing you could take your hands off the steering wheel and off the gas pedal as long as it sees that your eyes are on the road we're going to have to see if there's any enterprising news station that's going to subpoena all this video, all these documents of this crash, because I think all of it is really interesting, and it's in the public interest to put that stuff out there so they can see what happened. If this is a case where this driver, heaven forbid, was on her smartphone while this was happening, that's going to be a real problem. And I think it is fair to ask, was she paying enough attention to the road given that the car was driving itself? And I don't think we're going to know that unless we lay all the evidence out there and can judge for ourselves and go 360. (laughs) What I really think is going to happen is we are going to see this push back the development of self-driving cars. Now, earlier this month, the Arizona governor, uh, his, his staff, 
said that in a collision, the corporation that operates these vehicles would be responsible and the company could be held criminally liable, just like a person would if the person hit somebody else while they were crossing the street. However, local police has uh, previously said that if someone was behind the wheel of such a vehicle, the person would receive the citation for any suspected violations. So I think we're going to have to start seeing some lawsuits and we're going to have to start seeing some legislation on how all that's going to work before we can really get going with this. Well, and I mean, it's almost one where this one's going to have to be adjudicated or at least taken to a certain level in the court system so we can set some sort of precedent for how these cases are handled. And, and even though all these self-driving cars are are supposed to be much safer than, than the cars that, that we're driving by humans especially as the crash of crash avoidance features are, are becoming more and more advanced right now, they're not safer than humans. Um, and I think accidents like this are going to set back the push to get these self-driving cars on the roads back by several years. Um, as I was listening to other radio shows quip about this story, one host would say they wouldn't get into a self-driving car and then all the others would laugh and chime in agreeing with that sentiment. If you walked out right now, out here to the street, right in front of the building, Interviewed 100 people right now. Would you want to get into a self-driving car? I'd be surprised if more than 10 would say yes, they would want to get in one. I mean, I think all that's fair. And I do think part of the problem here is that, on the one hand, this is a crash that could have been caused by a human driver. On the other hand, this is a crash that could have been caused by a human driver. So why the self-driving car is not better. And the self-driving car has to appear to be better for people to be willing to take a chance on it. Especially when it comes to pedestrians and bike riders, because those are the people that should be most frightened uh, than the people that are in the car, because obviously in this situation, the person in the car was fine. person in the car is safe in the self-driving car, but it was the people outside the car, the pedestrian that's walking across, or let's say a bicyclist who might wander out into traffic or make a right turn. Uh, you know how bikers do that all the time. Yeah, I, I think to your point, this... I. The, the question of the setback really is going to be a TBD, right? I don't think it's going to set back the development and testing of self-driving cars because I think there are still enough markets out there that really want a piece of that game. Yeah. So I don't think we're going to see the testing aspect set back. There is a chance that le- regulations nationwide and on a state-by-state level will be tightened or they might drag their feet a little bit on putting those into place. So that might be where you see the development of this technology get slowed down. But again, I think for this specific crash to be what sets that chain in motion might end up being a mistake in the long run. Because I, again, I can't help but think that when the evidence comes out, we're going to find that this was a case where the pedestrian was at fault. But this might be the catalyst to start getting legislation going now instead of legislators waiting and waiting and waiting for this technology to keep advancing and then decide to come up with some rules and regulation. Maybe it's better to do it now, and this will be the spark that gets it going rather than waiting till much later. Well, and I think we should make it clear right now who's going to be at fault. If you're going to be if you're going to be able to take Uber or Ford or Lyft or Waymo or any of these companies to court or if you're going to be taking the person who the person, the independent right. citizen who owns those cars to court. I I think that precedent needs to be set sooner than later, and I think there's a separate question that's a lot more technical where it's like, well, okay, let's say Uber is going to be the one that goes to court for all of this, but what if I'm a driver who's also a hacker? 
and I've rigged up this self-driving car to do things more dangerously. Is Uber still going to be on the hook for that? There's so many questions that are going to have to be sorted out. I, I, too, feel badly for this woman who was killed. One, because she and I are the same age, so it makes me think of my own mortality. Yep. I also feel bad because it was a needless death for a technology that, that to me, seems like it's being pushed out too fast for its own good. Uh, I'm not sure why some people think we need these cars right now, and we can't introduce them over time as the technology gets better and better and, more importantly, safer and safer. And I, I understand they're testing it, but there's got to be other ways to test it than on just a real-life world scenario. The mayor in Boston has asked a couple of the companies there that do these self-driving car tests to take a break in light of the death in Arizona. I mean, they can take a break, but... The, it- you have to test the technology and the technology gets better the more you're on the road because it's able to it, it it's able to see more situations and adapt to more situations you have to be on the road at some point and tempe you would think would be the perfect place to do this testing because it's flat because there's not a lot of obstacles because there's not a lot going on so you don't have a whole bunch of things running not into the a road. lot of weather the big problem with these cars right now is that the cameras as good as they are still aren't good enough right or the sensors and the radars and but you have to test them at some point and you have to test them in an environment where you can figure out how to make them better you know, like, as I said, Tempe is a good place to be doing that. I understand putting the testing on hold for a little bit, but you can't hold back this technology either. And for you to have one deadly accident in hundreds of thousands of road miles driven, which is where we're at at this point, what can you do? Yeah, it just feels to me like they're, they're the promise of getting self-driving cars throughout the country taking everybody everywhere in, let's say, five years. That's what some estimates were that in even three years. I, I just we it, it always just seems laugh at too those fast though. You you and I yeah, both know. Every know. time we bring up one of those estimates on the show, we'd be like, ha, 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 "What an idiot!" And then the other morning, I got a Twitter message from a guy named John Harris. His Twitter handle is HarrisJ99HI. He's a fan of the show, and he writes to me and he says, "Idea for at Denver Seven Traffic's podcast: Compare accidents and deaths per million miles driven for driverless cars versus sixteen to twenty year olds." 21 to 25, 25 to 30-year-olds, etc. With driverless cars, are we dealing with the equivalent of teenagers, drunks, seniors, etc.? And it's an interesting question, and I answered it like this. I said, the reality is, on average, I think about 15 or so pedestrians are hit and killed every day. So the rate of self-driving cars involved in crashes or serious incidents are, are lower than if pre-teens are driving. I, I still think the push to roll out this technology is a little bit too fast. If we just look at the statistics of self-driving cars, they're they're really safer than regular cars driven by regular humans. They really are because if you just look at the miles driven, because there really haven't been that many miles driven and that much uh, testing of these things compared to how many other people, regular humans, are driving every single day. Really, it's such a tiny, 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 itsy bitsy, witsy, teeny weeny fraction of the cars that are on the road. There's really not enough data yet to make a realistic comparison yet. How many millions of miles do you think drunk people drive every day? Oh, all the time. I see, well, I see them every morning when I'm coming into work. Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating question in and of itself in my mind. Yeah. this is Look, it's not going to stop the testing. This accident's not going to stop the testing of these things. It's going to resume here in the next couple of weeks or months or so. And, and the progress of the future is going to be full of these cars and trucks and big cities this is really just going to be, in my mind, a little speed bump 
on the road to a self-driving car future. Yes, but within three years. <laughs> so I love driving, yes. especially early in the mornings when I come to work, since there are few others with me on the highways, just me and the cops and the drunks. But for those of you who fight through the commute every day, you can now bring your commute home in the form of a new card game called Crazy Commute. Awful. It's a new card game that's up on Kickstarter. This is how the two developers describe how to play the game. Crazy Commute is a competitive card game for three to five players and takes between 15 and 30 minutes to play. Players take on the role of drivers stuck in rush hour traffic and must fight to get ahead. An attempt to pass another driver allows your opponent to make a choice. Steal a card and let you pass, or start a duel and block you. Dueling combines funny item cards with rock-paper-scissor mechanics for fast-paced gameplay. Your commute is over when you win seven duels, but it's not quite that easy. Random event cards can be drawn at any time and are played immediately. These can change the way the game plays or what cards you can use to start a duel. So they say the inspiration for the game came from one of his long commutes in Southern California. Why not poke fun at one of the most frustrating times of your day, they say. The Kickstarter is up and now running through March 29th with nine days to go as of today, right now. They have collected only $433 of a desired $4,000. Touch over 10%. They say this is an all-or-nothing Kickstarter campaign. So this so they're is not b- making the game if you don't pay for it. Obviously, they're on their way to nothing because they have nine days to go, and they are still a few dollars short. They over-asked, man. They might have over-asked. And the game, it looks. if you look at some of the pictures of the card game, it's interesting, but if... You're taking an event that is so undesirable, mm. your commute, that you spend hours wasted of your of your valuable time that you can spend with your family or kids or doing anything else, beating yourself in the head with a hammer. I mean, how many games do we need, Jason? We don't need this game. Nope. Apparently, and we're not going to get it either. We are just railing against this poor game. This man. poor game. I, all I need is Yahtzee and guess who, and I'm good. Unless we have all of our podcast listeners go and give them a dollar or two. They'll be up to four hundred and thirty-six dollars. <laughs> what was the goal again? Four thousand. They're at four thirty-three. We're not making up that gap. I don't think so. Well, there were so many other great stories I wanted to get to today, like some ridiculousness when it comes to potholes and uh, the way some people are deciding to fill them. And there's this new ride share scooter service out in California, and and these new digital driver's licenses, but. Unfortunately, we're all out of time for this episode, and we'll have to wait a couple of weeks because I'm going to take a break next week, Joseph. Whoa. Yeah, sorry. Whoa. I have family actually arriving today from Florida. We're going to be heading to Glenwood Springs on the California Zephyr on the old Amtrak. Oh, we're taking the rail. Okay, riding the rail. So I'm supposed to pick them up from the airport, stay downtown Denver tonight, get on the train tomorrow morning, and uh, it leaves at 8 o'clock. Gets up to Glenwood at noon and then uh, let the fun begin, I guess. Can you bring a dog on a train? I believe so. I don't know. We don't have a dog. Mm. You um, kids. That's I have my kids. Yes, I actually had to pay for them to get on the <laughs> get on the train. Uh, so uh, it will be up there for the 
you know, for the rest of this week, and then they'll be around for the early part of next week, and they won't be leaving until Thursday. Mm. So they're going to be here a while. Hope you got plenty of snacks. <laughs> we will have some snacks. Hey, apparently, I checked with Amtrak. I went over there to Union Station as a uh, as a test. Okay. Because I haven't taken the train in 20 years, and it was from here to Detroit for my grandfather's funeral. That is a long train ride. It was a very long train ride. So I wanted to get over there because they've redone Union Station, and they've, they've redone it a little bit. So I wanted, I wanted to see what the procedure is going to be yes. getting over there. And so I did a little dry run through it. It went well. I would say Union Station right now, today, is the jewel of Denver. That is the – outside of Red Rocks, which I don't count as Denver because that's Colorado, for Denver specifically, I think Union Station The city is, of Denver owns Red Rocks. That doesn't count? That doesn't mean anything to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's too far too far outside of the city yeah, center. Yeah, you're right. Union Station is the jewel of downtown Denver. It really – and I, I still miss those old benches that they had downtown. You know what? There was just a good old-fashioned, old-timey feel down at the old Union Station, but it does feel more hip and cool and energetic. There are more bookstores in a one-mile radius of Union Station than there are in, like, the entire state of Mississippi. Yeah, well. Ooh. <laughs> Chew on that one for a while. <laughs> well, I know there's going to be some great train adventures I'll have to share with you when we get back, so we'll give all this, uh, all, you know, we'll, we'll be gone for a week, and then we'll, that'll give all the listeners actually a time and opportunity to revisit some of the earlier episodes Yes, when we, uh, when we didn't sound as good as we do now. Or not. <laughs> Prefer everybody go back to review some of the episodes. And, and, you know, and, and look back at some of the other fun topics. Dig through the archives, there you so go. to speak. So, uh, again, thanks again for listening. Thanks again for uh, chiming in. We always appreciate the uh, listener feedback and some of the contributions because we like to talk about it here on the show. So, until next time, I'm Jason Lipper, the Traffic Guy. I'm barefoot on tray table advocate Joseph Peters. No, you're not. <laughs> Be safe, and as always, happy motoring. She was wearing socks.